Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and co-parents of all ages, this podcast is for you. Introducing in the center ring the amicable divorce expert, Judith Weigel. Today we have on the program a most unusual person that I would be interviewing for divorce. But wait and see. Richard Melancon has 25 years of experience as a certified public accountant, business consultant, professional speaker, which is how we met, and author. His three books are You Can Afford the Good Life, a personal money management guide for people who are in financial crisis, just like divorce. His second book, 18 Secrets to Unlock Profits and Inspire Employees. We need to be inspired in our, in our marriages quite often. And third, integrity-based leadership, helping business owners align their personal values with the corporate mission that they have, which is many different missions. But I want to start with integrity-based leadership, Richard. So first of all, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. This is going to be an interesting conversation. Integrity-based leadership. I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine about how married people talk to one another in an untoward way. There's no leadership present in a relationship like this. So please explain to us first, what is integrity-based leadership? So integrity-based leadership starts with the priorities of the owner. And the priorities and the passion of the owner has to align with the mission of the business. When you start a business, you can go anywhere with this business. You can, your mission could be to maximize profit. It could be to create the best widget. It could be to dominate the market. It could be to be the best community partner. It could be to have the best place to work. It can be whatever you want. But when you, when you figure out and, and this takes a lot of soul searching, and it's difficult for owners, entrepreneurs to really look inward and say, what is my passion? What gets me up in the morning? What do I like to do? And how can I match that uh, with the mission of the company? When you're successful at doing that, you want to get up every morning, you want to go into the office, and your enthusiasm becomes infectious. Everybody knows that you want to be there. Everybody knows what you're trying to accomplish. You are consistent. You are verbal. You're enthusiastic. You're bubbling over with energy. And it's infectious and everybody wants to be a part of that because they know that you are going to be successful and they want to associate themselves with somebody else who is successful. Now, let's relate that to marriage and then, unfortunately, divorce. So in a marriage, and you've been married how many years? Um, I've been married 42 years. It'll be 43 years this November. Jeez, that's almost as old as I am. (laughs) (laughs) Not, I'm older than that without a doubt. (laughs) What is the success of your marriage, Richard? The success of my marriage is that my wife and I have um, matching values. We are very different in our personalities. My wife is a psychologist. I'm a CPA. We think differently. We process differently. Our perspective on many things is totally, totally different, but our values are consistent. 
So what I want out of life is the same thing that she wants out of life. And so when we're working toward a goal, when I am working toward a goal, I know that she's working toward the same goal and vice versa. So we are working together whether we know it or not because our goals match, our values match. We have the same perspective on how we think about money. We have the same perspective on how we think about retirement. We have the same perspective about how we think about relationships and and monogamy and marriage and, and the importance of the family structure. So we have very similar values. And that, unfortunately, has not been the criteria of many people who wind up getting divorced. They get married for many reasons, and they never even think about whether their values match those of their spouse or their prospective spouse. Early on, when you were getting to know one another or early on in the marriage, because things shift, one, things shift from dating to marriage. People tend to get a little more relaxed with each other. When they're married, the hunt is over. But did you two have to figure out the differences in how you communicated? Was that ever an issue? Absolutely. But what it all came down to was consistent values. I tell you, she thinks so totally different than the way I think. Her way of problem solving is different than the way I problem solve. And even to this day, I have to bite my tongue when I see her struggling with things because I think, well, why don't you just do A, B, and C and be fixed? And she can't see that or she won't see that or that's not the way she processes it. And I've learned that I need to let her process the way she processes And hopefully she lets me process the way I process. But our values have always been consistent. And that's the one thing, that's the one touchstone that we've always had throughout our marriage. Have we had ups and downs? Well, of course we've had ups and downs. Have we had arguments? Of course we've had arguments. But our values have always been the same. And therefore, our overall goals have been the same. Did you start out being goal-based? Oh, I think I I always did. My wife, my wife was always work oriented. Um, we were not fortunate enough to have children. So our careers became important to us o- over our lifetimes. Um, but my, so my wife was always uh, uh, focused on getting the job done today. My focus was always on where am I going tomorrow? So our goals, uh, the way we achieved our goals was different. And our priorities with regard to to work was different. You're in the money management business. Did you ever have financial challenges along the way? We were very fortunate. Um, We did not start off with a lot of money. We started off relatively poor. Um, My wife did have a house that she was buying. It was mortgaged to the the hilt. But uh, her perspective was always, why rent when I can own? And so she looked for a house that she could afford in the rental rate that she could afford. And she was able to find a house. It was a one bedroom house. It was less than a thousand square feet. So it was definitely a starter home and um, it needed some fixing up. In fact, my wife actually added an addition to the house one summer when she wasn't working. So, and she did it herself. Wow. I always marvel at people who can do that. That's so cool. Well, I was busy in school, so I didn't have time. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, but, but no, but that's great. I mean, people build their own houses or sketch out their own extensions to the house. I, I always marvel at them. You know, so we always you- knew we always knew that we had restraints, constraints. We we knew that we would never have unlimited money, and no one has unlimited resources in all areas of their business. And that's one of the foundations of the book. You can't afford the good life is that everybody has restrictions on, on their resources. But we live within our resources. We live within our, the wealth that we had at that time. Uh, when we got married, my wife was working and I was in school. I, um, I, stayed, uh, I took a break from school. And when I returned to college, um, we were dating fairly regularly. And then we wound up getting married while I was still in college. But she was working, so we had an income. We didn't have any children. Um, we lived within our means, and we were happy. Uh, we both grew up relatively poor, so we weren't used to a very high lifestyle. Um, I had a car that worked. Uh, so that was something that was always very important to me, to have a car that worked. Uh, she had a car that worked, and um, she had a job. And um, I also worked on campus, so I always had an income uh, for disposable things, which made me feel that, you know, I was contributing. So I didn't have to ask her for an allowance. And that was kind of important to me. Richard, let's talk about living within your means in a marriage. And then I want to extend that to, holy heck, we're getting divorced. What do we do now? But address that living within your means can actually be enjoyable. So that's one of the things that came out of my book. The the book, You Can't Afford a Good Life, actually wrote itself in the middle of tax season in 2009. Um, I I was inspired to write this book. Um, I I never saw myself as a writer um, until someone told me that I needed to write a book on financial management because that was after the 2008 financial crisis in the country. I'll never forget that. And so I wrote a book and it was for, it was for individuals, not for businesses. So I never saw myself as writing a book for individuals. And I sat down to write it and it, it literally wrote itself. It was a pleasure to write. So one of the things um, I, I focused on in the book was how can you live a life within your means? And so some people do not have an income to support um, a lifestyle, a minimal lifestyle. And that means that they need assistance. Either they need two jobs, they need, uh, if they're single, they need to move in with a roommate. Uh, sometimes they, they can move in with a family member. Uh, but, when, but one of the, I guess, one of the, um, the, the problems people have is they want everything now. And they want all high-end everything. They want, a, they want a permanent house as their first house. They want to live independently. They want to have a brand new car. They have to have all brand new furniture. They have to be able to go out and eat uh, on a whim to, at whatever restaurant they want. And we didn't do that. Uh, we, did, we very seldom ever ate out. Um, we uh, had a minimal house to live in. It was a one-bedroom house. It had a bedroom, a living room, a kitchen, uh, a large kitchen and, and dining room. And a bathroom, and that was it. Uh, it was enough to live in, uh, and enough for us to start off. We had a television, and our luxury—our luxury—was cable TV. 
Okay, so, from, okay, hold on a minute. I am a television addict. That would have been great for me. Right, right. So we had access to movies. So we, we were never really bored with entertainment. Um, we very seldom went to the movies because movies cost a lot of money. Uh, so it had to be a movie that we both really, really wanted to see before we would spend that kind of money. I mean, that was 10 bucks. That was $5 each. So we were married last century. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you were talking, I was thinking, shoot, when I was an adolescent, the movies were a quarter. <laughs> Seriously. I'm not going to tell you that I remember those days. <laughs> I was I was honest. <laughs> I want them back. <laughs> and and one of the things that we did is we we had a group of friends. And our entertainment was being with our friends. And so we had a lot of barbecues where people all pitched in for the food. So we didn't have to buy all the food. We had, we had a house. My friends all lived in apartments or, or with their family. And so it was real easy for them to come over to our house and enjoy the backyard. So we had a backyard with a really amazing tree. It was always cool. In the middle of July and August, the backyard was always cool. And we could barbecue under the tree. And it was, it was a great place. And so uh, by, by, helping, by having friends who shared the, the burden, we all enjoyed each other's company. And we all had a good time. And, you know, when, when, you're, in, when you're in your 20s and you're in school, um, life is just a big adventure. Um, if, you're, if you're trying to seek the best and, and, the, and the top uh, from the beginning, you're always going to be disappointed. And that's not where our perspective was. I think the pandemic brought us back to that point uh, trying to find pleasure in in small things and social, we, we we created social gatherings differently, and there weren't places to go to, so you know you didn't spend a lot of money. And I, I think the only good thing about the pandemic, believe me, I'd rather not learn these lessons that way. But I I, I saw people becoming a little bit more human with each other and and sensitive towards each other. And, and that felt good, except the people that were ready to get divorced, locked in the house together, <laughs> nowhere to go. They became very litigious. A few people worked on their marriages and, and didn't. People that had called me and were going to get divorced didn't. But people became very litigious. But I, I want to focus on money a second. The importance of dealing with money well in a marriage because unbeknownst to most of us and me until I got into this business, infidelity is not the A number one crime that uh, uh, drives a marriage into divorce. It's finances. It's not being able to live within your means. It's one person not being able to work when two incomes are necessary and it's um, different points of view about money. So as a CPA, how do you deal with people that come to you for financial advice? How do you look at what they have and how do you make recommendations for where they need to go? So what I do is I ask, and if there's a married couple, I try to meet with them together as opposed to meeting with them separately. And I ask them, what's important? 
What are they? What are their goals? Where do they want to be in six months, one year, five years, and ten years? What is it they want to achieve? What is it they want to buy? Um, what security are they looking to to accomplish? I ask them about their goals, and at that point, either they have no goals or they're very consistent or they're very far apart. Um, it's the far apart that becomes the problem. And so we, so we talk about how can you achieve a world trip for six months if both of you are making $30,000 a year um, within the next five years? Is that reasonable? And on the other end, um, the other spouse will say, well, I want a, uh, I want a new Corvette. I'm not really interested in traveling, but I want a new Corvette. So how can you afford a $70,000 car and a world trip on $30,000 a year salary for each of you? It's, it's not going to work. So we, we create some realistic goals. And we start talking about the fact that the goals of each of the, the principals, each of the partners, each of the spouses are so far apart that they need to really get on board with what's important in their life. And if they have kids, they both need to learn how to make decisions that are best for the family. And the way I, I present to them, if, it's, if both of you can't agree on a step, a purchase, a plan, a goal, then the answer is no, you can't have it. So both have to agree in order to move forward or that plan is rejected, and you can always bring it up at a later time. So once you have consistency, once you have agreement, then you can start working on, okay, what is it, what is it gonna take? And how much money do we really have? How much money do we need to cover our necessities? And how much money do we have that's discretionary? If you do not have any discretionary money after you cover your necessities, then the first thing is, are these truly necessities? Do you have, are all of your monthly expenses necessary? Can you cut back on them and still have a comfortable lifestyle? Most people can. Most people spend money without ever recognizing where the money goes. So I do ask them to keep a, a diary um, for at least two weeks, preferably a month, of all of their spending, of all of their spending, every nickel and dime and penny. Keep all receipts. And we start looking through what are their patterns of spending money. And it's an eye-opening experience for them because they don't realize how much of the spending was discretionary. So once we get a handle on how much money they have and how much discretionary money they have, now we know how to create a savings plan and how long it'll take to achieve the, the goals that they both agreed they wanted to work toward. But Focusing on the family is very important, and focusing away from those things they can't agree on is very important. Have you seen people after these meetings with you decide that they may not be the right people for each other? Do, do these meetings ever become, metaphorically, come to Jesus meetings? Yes, and, the, I, and I personally think that's okay, because they're living in conflict now, they just don't realize it. And that's the reason they came to me. They came to me to fix their money problems, but uh, money was not really the issue. Money was a symptom. And so we uncover the real problems uh, by going through this process. And I think that's okay. Why would you want to live with someone for 50 years that you, you can't stand to be around? 
that is stifling you, that's keeping you from enjoying your life. And or, you're, that, or that you're always struggling with for basic basic decisions on a de, you know daily basis. And it's not only that you're selfish because you're doing the same thing to them. Mm. They're feeling the same the same pains. So you're selfishly staying in a marriage that is not working. Either make the marriage work or end the marriage. What I see, certainly not every single couple, but I see it enough, Richard, that they definitely haven't lived within their means. Now they have to engage in a divorce settlement. They have obligations paying off debt, which is sometimes huge. And then there's spousal and child support. Right. So both of them are worse off after the divorce than before. And, and we talk, sometimes we talk about that. Um, usually I'm not in those discussions, discussions, but if they're trying to stay together, you know, I have no problem telling them, look, what's the alternative? You want to get divorced? You think you can have more money after your divorce than, than before? Uh, think again, go talk to an attorney, go talk to any marriage counselor, and you'll see that it costs a lot of money to get a divorce and it costs a lot of money to stay divorced. And if you get married again after that, you still have your family from the first marriage that you're, you're having to pay for. So when, when they see the reality, they're able to see that they have to make a decision. Sometimes they make a good decision. Sometimes they don't make a good decision. And I can't be responsible for their decisions. I can only present them with alternatives. You said that money was a symptom. What, is, what are some things money's a symptom of? Well, the, the money problems are a symptom. So when you spend beyond your limit, that's usually a symptom. It means that you have poor decision-making abilities. It means that you're using money to try to satisfy some need that either you don't recognize you have or you're not willing to address it. So people spend money because they're lonely and spend money because they're sad. They spend money because they're competitive. They spend money because they want to look a certain way and they, they never achieve it. So it's a, it's a self-image problem. Um, so they have lots and lots of reasons why they use money to overcome some personal problems. Now, I'm not a counselor. Uh, I'm a business consultant, but I am not a counselor and I am not a coach. And I know that. And I do not try to engage them as a coach. Uh, the difference between a, a consultant and a coach is that a, con a consultant gives you solutions. A coach allows you to come to your own insight. And I'm just not that patient. <laughs> well, but you are philosophical. And I was quite impressed when, when we were talking, and it wasn't to do a pre-interview for a podcast. It was really just to get to know one another as speakers, because, and, and for the audience, uh, we both belong to a speaking association. Uh, Richard is far more advanced than I am. I'm just beginning. But when we spoke, just to get to know each other in that way, Everything he was saying, I said, gosh, this can really transfer over into divorce. I think this would make an interesting discussion for the audience. And so I'm going to present a situation to you uh, that I run into a lot, and I just ran into it yesterday. 
And that is couple getting divorced, uh, lots of debt, lots of debt, lots of credit card debt. Uh, they've gone in and out of debt consolidation in the past, so they're experienced at that. But interestingly, breaking patterns, if you are a person that needs debt consolidation, you need more than getting a loan to take care of the existing debt, don't you? Absolutely. You have to change your perspective on the world in order to be successful. I mean, that's the bottom line. You have to change the way you think. You have to look at the problem a different way and come up with a different solution. So if I have a couple that came to me and they've already been through debt consolidation, they're back in debt. My first question is, what happened? Why did debt consolidation not work for you? What did you do to get back into debt after you were able to get somebody to approve a debt consolidation plan? And what you find is that they just retreated into the same old habits. They overspent. Um, they weren't um, trying to hold themselves accountable or they were trying to hide their accountability. And um, they did not concern themselves with the future. So they denied the inevitable result of their spending habits. And if they want to be successful, they have to change. Change is painful. Change is a struggle. Change oftentimes is not successful unless you have a plan. And if you can't create a plan, then you can't be successful. <coughs> sorry, I'm getting over a COVID cough. Oh, I'm so sorry about that. People no. are dropping again with COVID. I can't believe it. <laughs> I have too many friends. The future. One of the things you just said was they don't see the future. Right. They live in the present moment and right. that's it. Well, do you think that some people just don't understand what to do with money once they get it? Absolutely. For so many people, they've been sheltered their whole life and someone has bailed them out. So they've never been in crisis mode that they had to work out themselves. And if you've never had to solve your own problems, then you don't have a problem because somebody will come along and fix it for you. And those that continue to get into debt also, because I'm just thinking of certain couples that I've dealt with, also, I don't think understand about budget. Can, can we just talk about how important a budget is? So budget is a word that scares people because it's numbers-based. And it's hard for people to understand how to predict the future. And a budget is all about taking money that you're going to earn and deciding right now how you're going to spend it. And that's a frightening thought for many people because they don't know how to create a concept of what they're going to earn, especially if they're earning inconsistent salaries, people who work overtime, People who work on commissions, uh, people who work on some sort of performance-based compensation, well, they'll immediately say, well, that's not me. I can't do that because I never know how much money I'm going to make. Mm -hmm. and, and that's not true. Uh, they don't know how to do it. I'll grant them that, but they can do it. And in, in the book, I, I give them a way how to do that. Um, so the first thing you have to do is just look at last year's income. 
uh, you'll, you're going to see a lot of consistency and you're going to see that every month you made a certain minimum amount of money. Some months you made more, some months you didn't make that much, but you always made a, a certain minimal amount. Let's see if you can live within the middle, minimal amount. And when you make more, we're just going to set that aside and we're going to portion it out. We're going to portion it out for long-term goals, mid-term goals, and immediate goals. You always have to have a reward for that kind of very difficult work. And if you reward yourself for your success, then you're going to want to achieve success more often. That's true. That really is true. You know, I interviewed about a year or so ago two psychologists, therapists that talked about um, not financial fraud, financial infidelity, (laughs) financial infidelity, meaning uh, one spouse will hide their spending habits from the other spouse. So I'll tell you how my wife and I solved that. I tell you, we we were not fortunate enough to have children, so we both worked for for our entire careers. My wife is now retired. I'm still working. uh, And I'm working out of uh, from a choice. Um, So my wife keeps asking me, when am I going to retire? And I keep asking her, why do I need to retire? I mean, (laughs) I I do. It's not like I'm digging ditches. It's not like I'm working hard, but I'm enjoying what I do. So what we have always done, we've always had three checking accounts. I've had my account, she said her account, and we have a joint account. And we have decided what we need to put into the joint account to maintain our lifestyle. And so we each contribute that amount to the joint account. And we always make sure we have a balance in that account. And that's the account we use when we go on vacation. That's the account we use to pay for the mortgage. It's the account we use for, for food. Um, and I will tell you that sometimes, you know, I'll use my account for, for food. Sometimes she uses her account for food because we're married. And that's how we always started. And that is how we always lived. We still have multiple checking accounts, but now it's the point where our money is our money. And, you know, I'll buy something. It doesn't matter how much it is. She'll buy something. It doesn't matter how much it is in, in, the, uh, uh, in the course of the budget. Uh, it's not like she just goes out and buys a, a brand new car on a whim. Um, but you know, some of the, we now are at a point where we have matured so that we don't look at her money, my money, and uh, it's all our money. And so we've gotten beyond that that budgetary concept of how do we how do we structure it. Uh, we're pretty consistent in our spending habits. Um, we're pretty established, so there's nothing that's new that comes up except hurricanes and disasters. Which we're, we're well, still, you are in Louisiana, yeah. so yes. <laughs> and so, so we share those those adventures, uh, and and that's the only way to look at it as an adventure. Otherwise, it's way too depressing. I I can understand that, Richard. What when should somebody consider bankruptcy? Um, I think it's it should always be the absolute last step. It should never be the first step, and should not be a middle step. Should always be the last step. A couple of things happen in bankruptcy. For one thing, um, you know your credit is is um, uh, frozen for ten years. It's hard to get a loan, or it's hard to reestablish your credit and your credibility for ten years after bankruptcy. Um, and people don't realize how long ten years really is. Uh, 
And so they have to suffer through that for 10 years. The second thing is that it's a failure. It's a failure uh, point in your life. And it's a major trauma and it's expensive. Um, you don't go bankruptcy just by going to the court and say, please make me bankrupt. It costs thousands and thousands of dollars. And if you don't have the money to spend down on your debt, where are you going to get the money to pay for an attorney to help you go through the bankrupt bankruptcy process? So uh, I'm often amazed at how many people go bankrupt and I don't know where they get the money to, to, to pay for the attorney unless they go to a family member or some trusted source for a loan. So I think it's the last thing you should do. Okay. So in divorce, again, finances drive quite a few of the divorces and over leveraging uh, too much debt uh, is, is, is fairly common. So when you have a, a profile of lots of debt, lots of credit card debt, and you have children, so now you're going to be doing child support and all the miscellaneous expenses, and who knows if spousal support can fit in, in, in this picture. Other than declaring bankruptcy, what can you do? Is that when debt consolidation loans come in? Well, you can do debt consolidations. You can go get a second job. People don't think about that. You can cut back on your spending. You can spend only on things that are important. You can find ways to live your life that doesn't cost money. Going to the park doesn't cost money. Going to the library to check out movies doesn't cost money. Going to the library to check out books is free. Taking your kids to the zoo is low cost. Taking them on a, on a walk in the park to feed the ducks is at no cost, except for the price of the bread that you bring to feed the ducks. So there are a lot of things you can do that doesn't cost money. And you need to switch your mindset and say, I want to enjoy my life. What's important? And how can I enjoy it without spending money? What's important is, are your connections, your relationships, being with your children, being out in the sunshine, being healthy. And the one thing that I think people miss, they don't realize that parents are viewed by children 24-7. Every decision the parents make, the children watch and they absorb. And what are you teaching your children? By going bankrupt, by, by abdicating your responsibility, by not, taking not, by not being held accountable for, for your poor decisions. It's one thing to make a poor decision. It's one thing to, be, uh, to fail in an event. Um, but it's, a, it's another thing to do it over and over again and to justify it or to abdicate responsibility for, from it. And that's what you're teaching your children, whether, whether you're doing it intentionally or unintentionally, the children are learning that. And why do you want to perpetuate those kinds of inappropriate lessons? I think it goes back to there's a yearning, there's a craving, there's something that's not being fulfilled or satisfied within the person, and money becomes the outlet through which they seek help, enrichment. Do you think? Oh, absolutely. If you have, if you have more money than, than you need, then you can always find a way to spend it on pleasure. 
buy a boat, you can take a trip, you can get a new hairdo, you can get a new outfit, you can get a new car. You can always spend your way out of out of your your uh, I guess your depression or your sad feelings. Um, it's an empty uh, process. It's an empty achievement because you're not really working towards something. All you're doing is eliminating the pain. You're not building anything, and you're not teaching your children how to live an effective or a positive life. When you meet with people and you f- see this pattern of creating debt, paying debt off, creating debt, paying debt off, you're married to a psychologist, a therapist. Do you ever recommend therapy? I would hesitate in recommending therapy. I, I would recommend a, a marriage counselor. Mm. And some psychologists perform marriage counseling. So I would never tell someone that I think they should see a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I think the implications of the mental health implications of that statement um, would do some damage. I think uh, that would create a negative environment. But I, I would easily recommend that they consider marriage counseling. Um, because I do know the value of a good therapist. Um, so I I think that I think that when when you're if you're the type of person that is unfulfilled, like you said, that person needs to somehow develop some insight. And that's very, very difficult. They can develop the insight by listening to their partner. They can develop the insight by looking at the things that they were not successful at, as opposed to saying that there are things that failed at. Because I think that a lack of success can be a a good learning uh, opportunity if you allow yourself to learn from it. If you look at it as a failure, then you want to deny it. If you look at it as a learning opportunity, then you want to embrace it and you want to improve on it. And you want to move forward without making the same mistakes. So it's a matter of perspective. But you have to have some insight. If you don't have the ability to create that insight for yourself, then you're never going to move forward. And also, I think when you look at certain parts of your life, decisions that you've made as a failure, you you tend to beat yourself up to the point where you, you can't move past that to see what the remedy is. And, and, and I think there's a danger in doing that too. My perspective on life is we all have different lessons to learn. And so you may see somebody financially successful, but you don't know what's going on in other parts of their life that may be very difficult for them to deal with. They're just not talking about it. And maybe you only know them through business or uh, not as interpersonally enough to know what's going on in their lives. And so, you know, that, that for me is maybe a good way of not sinking down into complete depression because money can do that to you. If you're not making money, you're not feeling fulfilled, you're not feeling successful, it really does a number on your head and it's hard to rally from that. 
And the other thing is that people use money as a mechanism to count their success points. And that's wrong. Money shouldn't be used to count your success points. Ooh, I made $1,000 in a bonus. Did you only make $500? Well, I made twice as much as you. So I'm twice as successful as you are. So when money's used to count your success, it's great if you're a salesperson. It's a great way to motivate your salespeople by giving them commission because they do use money. And salespeople do not use money in the, in the traditional sense. They use it as a counting mechanism for their success. Um, and, and that's important in that environment. But at home, you don't want to use money as, as a marker for your success. You, money is a, is a resource. It's a tool. Just like time is a tool, just like, um, uh, I guess, maturity is a tool, um, just like conversation is a tool. Money is just a tool. And if you look at it at anything else, you get a distorted view of where you are, how much resource you have, and what your options are for solving your problems. And so that's why a budget is such a scary thing, because it measures how much money you have and therefore measures how successful you can be. Oh, that's good. That makes sense. And so that you have to break that. Sense. Right. So and if you don't pattern. work right, if you don't work within a budget, you, you have no lines, you have no perspective, you have no mirror. Right. Um, that was so, so when you learn to use a budget in a positive way, by knowing that you have enough to cover your, your required expenses. And you know how that you're allocating your discretionary income and that you're rewarded for doing these things, then you can change your perspective on whether or not a budget is, is positive. I like that. Richard, right before we started recording this, <clears throat> I was asking you to compare business with divorce, business with a marriage that isn't working. Can you restate what you said? Because it was so good. <laughs> Thank you. So what I said is that when people are going through the process of becoming divorced, there is a process. You have conflict in the marriage. You have lack of communication. Sometimes there's miscommunication. There's a lot of mistrust. There's a change in goals. Sometimes there's a change or a recognition of the differences in values. There's a process that people go through. And I'm sure that there are many similarities that you've seen in all of the divorces that you worked with, that there are some consistent patterns that most people go through. There's certainly some unique things that each couple goes through, but there's some consistent things. Those consistent things tend to happen in a business environment that's dysfunctional between departments and sometimes within departments. And when those factors come together and the dysfunction leads to inappropriate behavior in, a, in the business, then people divorce themselves from the work, from their, uh, their attitude, their motivation, and then finally from the company. And so they leave the company and, at least, and then the company has to spend a lot of money to replace them. Because if, if you're paying somebody a salary when you go to replace that person, not only do you have to pay the salary, you have to train the new person. You have lost productivity until they become established in this skill set. You have a, an orientation or a disorientation. You have um, a lot of times you'll hire people and they don't work out. So you have to start the process over again, two, three, four, five times before you get a permanent employee. So it costs a lot of money to replace a person after they leave an, uh, an employer. 
um, unless you have a, an extremely structured environment like the fast food industry where they plug and play people because uh, it's just a very structured environment. But that's not how most businesses work. So if you can identify what are the patterns that people go through in a divorce and apply them in a business situation, you can resolve many of the conflicts before they develop into full-blown crises and help people identify why they're working in that company, in that particular company. What are the benefits? What do they get out of it? What are the reasons to stay? And why is that beneficial for both the employee and also for the employer? It has to be a win-win on both sides or else the employer is not going to put up with the process of this self-realization. You know what I just thought of? I just thought of this comparison. Getting a job, you just needed a job. It was the right price. You kind of like it. Maybe it's not the thing you love doing. And then you just stay. Even though you feel you're stuck, you're not growing, it's a safety net. And it's my job. People hang on to, like you own that job. Same thing in a marriage. It's not really working. Maybe you realize that your decisions to get into this relationship were not exactly right, but you're there. And it takes a lot to get out of it. That kind of tells me that that's a person who values tenacity more than they value success. Continue. Well, if you value tenacity, you don't want to give up. You <laughs> learn what you need to do to stay, and you do the things you need to do to stay, and you never think about the long-term progress, the long-term success, the long-term achievements. So you're always living in the moment, doing what you need to do to make sure that you get through the day. I don't think that's a very fulfilling lifestyle. And you spend so much time at work. Why, why are you torturing yourself? And then why are you torturing yourself in your relationship too? Right. And, pe and people do that. Very interesting. There's something here I wanted to call your attention to. So you speak on a range of business topics. And this is a topic, first one up, that I can definitely relate to marriage and or uh, the lack of it in divorce. And that is, it's under staff motivation. And you said doing the right thing at work. This is one of the things you talk about. What do you mean by that? So all motivation is self-motivation. You cannot motivate someone. They have to be motivated internally. You can in, you create an environment where people feel motivated, where they're, they're excited to be there, they're energized when they arrive at work. Um, so they can, they can become motivated. But all motivation is internally generated. So if you have people that are motivated, they're going to do the right job. They're going to do the best job they can. They're going to follow the, the rules because um, businesses do run by rules. And they're going to identify, they're going to be the first ones to identify where there's, when there's an exception so that challenge can be removed so that everybody can get back to work and do the right thing. Do the thing that they're being paid to do and to do it well. So doing the right thing means what is your job? And what are the tools that you need? What is the training that you need? What are the resources you need? Once you have all that, what is your excuse for not getting the job done? If you don't have an excuse, everybody's happy. Then 
in a marriage, doing the right thing is? You have have to go back to values. You have to go back to values. What are you working toward in your life? And how does the family support those values? And how do you support the family once those values are implemented as part of your lifestyle? Family is important because it creates the next generation, but it also creates the next adults who will then continue the families. And so as a parent, your job is to create human beings who are independent and who are self, who are, who are fulfilled or working toward fulfillment in their own lives. Your, your job is to leave the world better than when you arrived and to make sure that if you have children, that the children have the tools to create a better world than they arrived in. That is lovely to hear. Now I'm going to give you an example. I mean, that really is lovely to hear, Richard. Um, I'm going to give you an example. I live in Los Angeles. It's not completely unique. There are a couple other major cities in the country that are like that, but it's very type A. We have the film industry. We have the television industry. And there's lots of money that roll, and and we have real estate. But television and film, uh, there's a lot of money in it. It's a very fear-based, these are two fear-based industries, two very competitive industries. And so I had found that my, my background before I got into divorce was I produced live entertainment for private events. I would do both corporate events and social events. So I got to do film premieres and, you know, corporate parties for Disney and big entertainment companies. And then I got to go to the people's homes when they entertained at their house. Mike Ovitz, Michael Eisner, I mean, really big names. I was very fortunate. I considered myself very fortunate that I'm not of that wealth. But I got to be behind the scenes and I I got to watch them raise their families because they hire you over and over and you get to provide entertainment for some milestone events, some bar and bat mitzvahs, uh, graduations and, and, you know, baptisms, different kind of parties. And I would watch not all men, but mostly a male-driven society up until a certain point do nothing but work. They barely ever saw their children. And then most of them eventually got divorced because they didn't really grow the family like they grew their careers and their business. And I always would ask, well, um, why are you starting a family then? If you're never going to be home, what's the point of starting a family? Have you seen this happen? Uh, Type A people that work a lot and are not with their children a lot? Sure. And the children suffer because of that. Uh, When you you don't focus at least a portion of your energies on building a family, and I don't think you need to be home uh, after an eight-hour shift uh, every day, seven days a week. I think you can have a life. I think you can enjoy hobbies. I think you can uh, have a, a career. I think if you have um, a job that travels, you can travel. Um, you can't travel 100%. But I don't, ha- I don't see a conflict with people fulfilling career goals and also fulfilling, fulfilling family goals. 
but you have to make a focus of your family and you have to spend the time when you are home building the family and creating the values, creating expectations, giving those life lessons, lessons, recognizing that you are accountable to everyone who's in your home for everything that you do. And they are accountable for their actions as well. And so if you're not going to do that, you're not fulfilling your responsibilities that you assumed when you had kids, when, when, when the child was born. And so that's, that's a dysfunction. I don't know how else to say it. And I will tell you that in the largest cities, people have justified their actions, which humans are apt to do. And I don't agree with the justifications. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's just so interesting to watch this play out. Um, lastly, You've given us so so much great information. I want to leave with a little explanation of this one other phrase that I enjoyed, and that is, uh, it's under business sustainability, but I'm going to look at it as relationship sustainability as well. And the phrase is, success in your attitude and in your bank account. How do the two fit together? So if you have, a, if, if, you're, if the mission of your company aligns with your personal values, you want to go to work every day. You're excited to go to work. So your attitude changes. It becomes very positive. And you see the world in a much different way than if you're depressed. Um, people who are depressed always look for the, the, the next shoe to fall. They're looking for the ceiling to collapse. They're looking for the next hurricane to come through or the earthquake to swallow up where they are. When you're happy, you see the world in a whole different light. You see nothing but opportunity. And the opportunity is for you and also the people that you're surrounded by. So you start seeing opportunities for the people you work with. You start seeing opportunities for the people that you work outside of your business with, like your suppliers and even sometimes even your competitors. It's amazing when you see people who are happy that they want everybody else around them to be happy. So they look for ways to create happiness or to create a happy environment in the people around them. So they find out, what do you need to be happy? What would make you successful? Uh, What's keeping you from going from point A to point B? And if they can help them get through that process and see how happy they are at the end, they're more than willing to do it because what does it cost you? A little bit of time. Well, what, so what? A, what's the second half of that, though? So when when you are successful in your attitude, and you see all these opportunities, you're going to be successful financially because uh, these these opportunities are going to turn into profits. Okay, understood. Because so you're then, focused on what you're doing. So then, in a family, um, the best way to grow a family is to. A, we'll pick the right person to grow a family with, right? Absolutely. And as soon as you identify that's not the right person, please move on. And the only reason you should be dating is to find a spouse. If you're dating for another reason, it's not a date. Would you please continue that? I've never heard anybody say that. The only reason you should be dating is to find a spouse. If you're dating for any other reason, it's not a date. It's just a good time. Huh. 
Okay. So, and if, people, and if people would use that word appropriately, then it would build correct expectations on both sides. The word date? Yes. When did you think like that? I always did. <laughs> did you really? So that when you were younger, you knew you wanted to get married. Right. So this is great. 40. Well, uh, not only did I know I wanted to get married, but I assumed that I would never find anybody to marry. I never thought I would find the right person. Why? Because I did not know how to find a spouse. I did not know what I wanted from a spouse. I didn't know how to articulate that. And I was so afraid of making the wrong decision because I didn't want to get divorced. I wanted to make the right decision because I wanted to build my life with my family. How did you then know that your current wife was the right person? We fell in love. That's how I knew. Okay. I can't answer it any more simplistically than that. No, I know. I know. I, you know, I, uh, when people talk about, well, how do you know? How do you know? You just really know. You do. Now, now, whether that lasts as long as, what is it, 42 years, you said? Yes. That takes work. Well, it does take work. And, and we did not get married within six weeks either. We dated for five years. Oh, so you had lots of experiences together. Right. And that was key because we got a chance to see how we reacted in different situations. Yeah. And, and, and I shouldn't say that. I, we didn't date for five years. We met each other at a party and with mutual friends, and we saw each other over and over again because of our mutual friends. And when we started dating, we did date for more than a year. We dated for about two years, but we knew each other for five years before we were married. And so we saw each other in many different situations. And she got a chance to meet my family. I got a chance to meet her family. And it wasn't just at the holidays. It was at different times of year. So you get a chance to, to see people who, and who they really are and how they're able to cope with life, how they're able to solve problems, uh, what happens when they're stressed, um, how, do they, you know, how do they get through um, all the challenges that we all face. And you're right. Marriage is, is not automatic. It's not easy. You do have to work at it. You have to want to be married. If you don't want to be married, it's one of the hardest things there is in the world. And you have to understand what giving respect is to your spouse, your partner. You have to communicate in a kind and gentle way, even when you're not agreeing with things. And your values have to be lined up. I, I Absolutely. I really go back to that with you. That was great. That was great. Richard, we're now at the end of our time, and I found this to be an absolutely lovely conversation. Thank well, you. thank you. I appreciate it. And I enjoyed my time as well. Thank you. So we're going to have all the contact information for you in the show notes, but even though you are a very successful author and public speaker, are you still seeing clients as a CPA? Yes, I still maintain an, uh, an active practice. So my speaking uh, takes a second seat during tax season, uh, but the rest, of the, the rest of the year, I find opportunities and, and have a great time. Are you state-specific with your license? So my license is through the state of Louisiana, where I live, and I'm allowed to work any place in the country 
for up to two weeks at a time. If I work longer than a two-week period, then I have to uh, obtain approval for work that requires a license. So if I was doing an audit or something that requires my signature, I would have to get approval for that work from the state society in that state. Some work is generic, like my business consulting work is generic. And I usually do not spend more than two weeks at a time with a client anywhere. When I come on board with my consulting services, I may be there a day, no more than three days at a time, and I will give them homework and I'll, I will go away and we can connect on by telephone or by Zoom for follow-up. And then I'll come back on site for, for more intensive work and then walk away until the project is finished. So um, I, don't, I don't have a need to go more than two weeks. And my practice is more of the accounting side, not the auditing side. So I'm not doing the kind of work where I need to sign off because uh, an audit may take multiple months. Right. And that would be more difficult. And um, that's not the work that I do. Well, I wanted people to know that you can work outside of the state of Louisiana because you have such a kind and gentle way about you that I, I think it, it's very appealing uh, to talk about money and budget and um, focus on the future with you. And, 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 and I hope I hope some of our audience can do that. So thank you so much right. for joining us. Thank you. And, and I've, I've always found that if you're honest and you're sincere with people, they, they will listen and they will try to have an open mind with what you say. And hopefully they will try and relate that to how they're living their life. And if they can see a better way by combining what I say with their experience, then it's a positive uh, encounter. I bet it is. I bet it is. Thank you, Richard. Thank you so much. And thank all of you for listening. As always, I, I appreciate the opportunity to connect you with uh, brilliant minds and people that can address parts of your life, uh, either considering staying married or getting divorced. Uh, you can reach me through my website, theamicabledivorceexpert.com, theamicabledivorceexpert.com. And as always, have an amicable day. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. Be good to yourselves, be kind to your spouse, and cherish your children above all else. 